section, uh, there's something new that I discover when we begin to study it, so I'm always excited to come Wednesday night when we do it. But I will invite you to turn right in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 16 through 23. So this evening, uh, just as an illustration, we've all had times when we've been given instruction maybe from our parents, bosses, or spouses. And we seem to neglect or forget those instructions until sometime down the road, once you know, whatever they said was going to happen, happened. So we, we learn too late. Well, we have the same situation with Jehoram, because Jehoram does get instructions from Elijah. Will explain. But he gets instructions from Elijah, and it could have been that he knew this instruction a long, long time and never did anything about it. We're going to take a look at Jehoram tonight, and one of the reasons we're not going to cover many verses is because we have this, this confusion of the two Jehorams. Now, sometimes scripture tries to separate and calling one Joram and the other Jehoram because that's the nickname. Joram is short for Jehoram. But even in the text we're studying tonight, it starts out with Jehoram and then changes to Joram of the same individual. But we'll take a look at this and we have some things to look at. But anyway, let's just begin this evening with the word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we know that everything in Scripture is for our example. We're to study it for it, we're to be instructed by it, and then we be wise and prudent to put it into practice so that many things, Lord, that trip us up will not happen. Father, we ask you to give us wisdom of the life of Jehoram and how he forsook the Lord and how these things came upon him. Would you cause us to be able to think these things through, Lord, and apply what we can to our own lives. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what I'd like to do is, since there's only a few verses here, let's go ahead and read verses 15 to 23 of 2 Kings chapter 8. We're going to be introduced to Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat. We've actually seen his name before. But let's begin with verse 16. And right away, here, in one sense, here's part of the confusion. And yet I think the author does a great job in settling the confusion. Verse 16. Now in the fifth year of Joram, watch this, the son of Ahab. Okay, so Ahab's son was Joram. He was the king of Israel. That's the northern kingdom. Jehoshaphat, being then the king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, became king. So we can see the two are separate, even though their names are identical. Joram is the short version of it. Jehoram is the long version of it. And so as long as we keep in mind that the Jehoram that's associated with Jehoshaphat he's associated with the southern kingdom. And what I decided to do tonight was put an S behind him every time we're talking about him so we know who we're talking about. We don't get confused with the northern and the southern kingdom. Alright, so let's finish it out. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab became his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. However, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant. 
and she had promised him to give a lamp to him through his son's bones. In his days, Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah and made a king over themselves. Then Joram, now he's called Joram, and one might think, well, maybe it's the other Joram, but as you look at the context, he's speaking of one individual, Jehoram, and now he's calling him by his nickname. I suppose it would be like if you were calling someone by their formal name, William, and then and then you call them William a few times, and then you just start to call him Bill. You know, here's Bill, because he's my friend, and we, Bill and I do a lot of things, but when I introduce Bill, I'm going to introduce him as William. So, so perhaps the author has already introduced him, but now he's going to talk about, not Bill, but Joram. Then Joram crossed over to Zaire, and all his chariots with him. And he arose by night and struck the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots. But his army fled to their tents. So Edom revolted against Judah to this day. Then Libnah revolted at the same time. The rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Let me just stay right there. That's as far as we're going to go because we're going to go over to Second Chronicles. But notice this right here. So the book of Chronicles here is not the book of Chronicles in the Bible. We've said this before. It was an official royal record. But notice what it's called. The book of Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. So therefore that Joram is of the kings of Judah. He's the southern kingdom. And Jehoshaphat is his father, so that is the Jehoram that we're talking about. Alright, so if I haven't completely confused you, let's work our way through, and then we're going to take a look at Second Chronicles in just a little bit. Alright, so first of all, what we find, we talk, we're talking about the uh, Joram, the son of Ahaziah. Okay, so he comes... He's the son of Ahaziah, king of Israel. And I have a chart here, which is just so helpful. Uh, it's almost every time I study this, I have to look at this, this chart. So let's look at the right-hand right column for the kings of Israel. That's the northern kingdom. And we started out with Jeroboam. You remember, he was the first king of Israel. Then I skipped a whole bunch of guys who fitted on this chart. Then we come to King Ahab. Terrible King Ahab was a sinner he was. Married Jezebel. They were, they were made for each other. And then he has a son. And the son is Ahaziah. And Ahaziah, we read about him. And we see even the, the prophet's interaction with him. And then next is Joram. So basically, Joram is the brother of and not his son, but he is Ahab's son. Alright? So hopefully everything I'm saying tonight is not confusing you. Alright? So, so Joram is Ahab's son, but he's Ahaziah's brother, and of course he came to power at age 52. Now on the other side, we have Rehoboam. That was Solomon's son. He started it off with the kings of Judah. We drop down to Asa, who was a good king and the, the longest established reign. And then we have another good king, Jehoshaphat, mostly good. And he reigned from 870 to 848. In 848, we see that his son, Jehoram, who can also be called Joram, took over. And then things are confusing enough. His son is going to reign after him, and his son's name is Ahaziah, Ahaziah. So it, it, it pays for us to kind of be careful in looking at this, making sure that we're not totally confused. All right, with that in mind, look at verse 17. It says, He was 32 years old when he became king. 
Now, one of the things that is believed is that he co-reigned for several years with his father before he took over the sole reign after his father died. So I've heard a, a number of commentaries make that comment. And that's very, very possible. That happens quite a bit, uh, and we'll see it in the book of Kings. Well, his stand as sole king was from 848 to 841. And these dates are going to be important because we have another situation coming up that we are going to ask the question, this doesn't make any sense. We'll, we'll answer that in just a moment. Well, at this point, we were introduced to him in verse 18 that he was not good. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab became his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So main thing here is that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. But you notice something a little a little interesting here? He's a southern king. He's not following the kings of Israel. He's not following Ahab. He's the king of the southern kingdom. Jehoshaphat is his father. So why in the world does it say that he is following the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. Why does it say that just as the house of Ahab had done? Well, one of the things that we find out is that his lifestyle is like that. He, it's as if he could have been of the northern kingdom and brought in foreign gods and worshipped them and caused uh, Israel, and now here Judah, to play the harlot. In, in their foreign god worship. And so we see that. But we also see something else. It says, For the daughter of Ahab became his wife. So now there's a connection between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, and it's not good at all. It's not good at all. But before we get into that, I want to talk about some of the evil that King Jehoram had done. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles, chapter 21, verse 2. So this was one of these uh, parallel passages that I thought, okay, we, we have to take a look at this. There's not much said in the book of Kings, but we have to take a look at it with the additional information from 2 Chronicles. The first thing we're going to see that he had six brothers, and then we're going to see that he murdered all six of them. So the first thing he did when he became a king was to murder his brothers. Notice what it says, verse 2. He had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, of Zariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariahu, Michael, and Shephatiah. All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel. Now let's just read on a little bit. Their father gave them many gifts of silver, gold, and precious things with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. Maybe we're finding out now some of the motive for him killing his brothers. Maybe right from the get-go he was jealous. Now, he got the kingdom, and he is the king, and he can do whatever he wants to do. But nevertheless, that jealousy might still have been there. So, first opportunity, he may have been saying, when I become king, they're done. But then we read on. Verse 4. Now, when Jeroboam had taken over the kingdom of his father and made himself secure, he killed all his brothers with the sword, and some of the rulers of Israel also. So here's another motivation. He wanted to secure his throne. Now why would he have to do that for his brother? Well, maybe he's been jealous. Maybe he didn't have a good relationship with his brother. Plus we know from ancient manuscripts and things about kings and their siblings how often they are uh, killed or, or at least attempted at murder. So anyway, he's not taking it any chances, but he's from Judah. 
he's from the southern kingdom, the one that David came from. And we're, those kings weren't supposed to act like that. So this is sin. And God's going to call us in here in just a moment. And so this was something that was going on. Now, it, it could be because of the jealousy, but it also could be because of security. Why he felt he had to do that could be because of the way that he acted before that. Now, there is an interesting verse down in verse 13. So here it's talking some more about his evil deeds. And this is 2 Chronicles 21, verse 13. It says, But, um, but have you, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel. So he's, he's a southern king, but he's acting like the, the terrible, sinful northern king. And have caused Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot as the house of Ahab played the harlot. And that's horrific. And then he says, and you also have killed your brothers. So God is very aware of this, and God was not pleased with this. This was sin. He says, you killed your brothers and your own family who were better than you. You're deplorable. You're despicable. And you killed the better ones of your family. Or your own motivation of jealousy and perhaps security. But I'd like to visit now this, this uh, verse here that we just mentioned, verse 13, where he talks about, you have caused Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot. Now, first of all, we have the idea of high places. And it tells us that Jehoram set up high places we've talked about those. Those are shrines to foreign gods. And they put them on a high place so that people can see it from miles around. One, to be able to find it. But two, that they can keep their, their position towards these gods. Uh, we saw some pictures when we first started this out of, of uh, what would happen was the pagans would have a, a foreign altar there, an altar God, and then when the Israelites would come in, if they were walking with the Lord, they would destroy that altar, and then they would set up an altar to Yahweh. So this was one of the practices. But then it reversed itself, and they started setting up high places to these foreign gods. And this is how they began to play the harlot. And it, the word, the Hebrew word, is pretty much as what the word harlot means. Only it's spiritual. They were either serving these foreign gods plus Yahweh, which we, we saw that in, in Jeremiah, or they completely went after these foreign gods and forsook God. And that's what God said. That's the one that I won't tolerate. And if you do that, you are going to be taken into captivity at some point. And he kept telling them that. It's, you know, go back now to the illustration of did you ever hear something and get some information and then you just, you know, you, you didn't follow it, you didn't follow it, and then the next thing you know, the results and consequences happen. And you go, oh, why did I listen? Well, this is Israel. Over and over, generation to generation, he's been telling them not to be involved in idolatry, and yet they were. And here, he's saying, you, the king, you led them into this. So the king wasn't the high priest, but he was supposed to be a spiritual leader. And the very fact that Jeroboam was not a spiritual leader, he was the one that led the northern kingdom into idolatry. But you would think Judah, the southern kingdom, would have escaped that. No, Jeroboam led them right into it. And now, all like the others, he says, you have caused Judah's inhabitants to play the harlot. You're, you're either two-timing God, or you've totally forsaken him. So it is interesting because we find certain things in the scriptures. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it. Deuteronomy 31.16 The Lord said to Moses, 
Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, meaning he was about to die. And this people, Israel, will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land, into the midst of which they are going, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. So, uh, idolatry was false worship, it was sin, it caused them to forsake the Lord, when they forsook the Lord, they broke the covenant, when Israel broke the covenant, that was it, that was the last straw. Though God was very merciful uh, throughout Israel's history. Um, he even goes on to say this, he even goes on to say in Scripture, if you commit spiritual harlotry, I will allow harlotry in your land and in your family. In Hosea chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he said, My people consult their wooden idols, and their diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains, high places, there you go, and burn incense on the hills. So if there, even if it's not a high mountain, it's a hill, it's a high place. Under oak, poplar, and terebinth. And that's the idea of a tree up in elevation that they would worship there. Because their shade is pleasant, therefore your daughters play the harlot and your brides commit adultery. So under the law, we see that God was saying, look, if you do that to me, I'm going to allow you to understand what that feels like. I'm going to allow you to understand and experience that. And this is exactly what has happened. So as we're looking at Jehoram, the evil that he did, he did follow the kings of Israel. He brought in idolatry. He did murder his brothers. And of course, we saw that in the, the northern kings. They, they were full of treachery. He made high places. And they played the harlot. And it led Judah astray. And, and, and if you see that there in verse 13, uh, you cause. Judah and the inhabitants to play the harlot, and you have led them astray. The idea is that they were probably doing better than they were until Jehoram came along, and they followed him. In fact, they were, because Jehoshaphat was, for the most part, a good king. He had some faults, but he did not lead the people into idolatry. Well, now let's take a look here at uh, verse 18, again, keep one finger here, and then take it, another finger and put it there in 2 Kings 8. Alright, so in 2 Kings, this is what he said in verse 18. So he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had for the daughter of Ahab became his wife. Now, I want to talk about this for just a moment. This is what you would call an unholy alliance, even though they may have been of the descendants of Israel, of tribes of Israel. It was an unholy alliance because it was a split kingdom, a separated kingdom, a divided kingdom. And you remember when this happened with Jehoshaphat? And you remember when Jehoshaphat allied with the king? And he was rebuked by a prophet. This was back in 1 Kings 22.4. Prophet came to him and said, well, well, first of all, he was asked to go along and battle with him. And he says, I will do that. And in 2 Chronicles, it says, Jehu, the son of Hanani, the steer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? 
and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord. So, we can understand why you would have that in Scripture, because none of us are to be, have uh, close acquaintances with the wicked. Now, can we be friends with them? Yes. But can we be chums with them and go do the same things that they do and, and give approval? No, we cannot. But this is talking about Israel with Israel. The southern part of Israel, you're not allowed to ally with the northern kingdom because you remember what Jeroboam did, made the golden calf right from the get-go. This is who we're going to worship. Now we don't have to go down to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom to worship. So this was a unholy alliance here that he would marry the daughter of Ahab. But look at it again. Look at the way that it's written. As he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done, for, here's the reason why, for the daughter of Ahab became his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. It sounds like she had pretty good influence. Well, guess who her mother was? Her father was Ahab, her mother was Jezebel, and she's following right in suit. And you can pretty much guarantee that she's marrying him to get her hands on the throne. And we're going to find out in chapter 11. And she does. But we'll save that for chapter 11. So she not only influenced him uh, for her to have some power, but she influenced him for evil. And of course, you would imagine that if Jezebel brought in those prophets of Baal, and they were involved in Baal worship, here's their daughter, as she's being raised up, she's being raised up, not in the worship of Yahweh, but in the worship of Baal. So she grows up, she marries Jehoram, no wonder he's putting out foreign gods on the high places. He probably wants peace in the home, you know? Mama ain't happy, ain't nobody But you know what? First of all, you're not supposed to get yourself in that situation. Second of all, God forbid you ever find yourself in that situation, you just have to make a stand. That's where the that's where the uh, proverb comes in, instead of live in the corner of a rooftop and then repent his wife. But I'm only testing. Alright, so this is the evil that he's done now. We've compartmentalized it by looking at Second Chronicles. But I want to I want to go back to Second Chronicles. Go back to Second Chronicles again, if you would, because there's something here that is going to cause us to scratch our heads in just a little. Bit. <clears throat> all right. So let's first of all look at verse eleven. It says, moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot and led Judah astray. This is what he did. Look at verse 12. Then a letter came to him from Elijah. Now, we haven't heard from Elijah for a long time. He has been translated to heaven for quite some time. So we got to figure this out. Then a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, well, I'm going to stop there. He's going to prophesy against Jehoram. Of course he is. Now, what is happening here? How could he get a letter from Elijah if Elijah had already been translated to heaven? And this is something that the critics really try to emphasize against us as Bible believers. And the critics say that Jehoram, when he received the letter from Elijah, not Elisha, he, it, it has been labeled a pure product of the imagination. Since, number one, Elijah had nothing to do with the southern kingdom. Elijah was called the northern kingdom. And clearly was not living at this time. So, how can this even be worked out? But it is explainable. It is answerable. And the first one is, what about the southern kingdom? Did he ever minister to the southern kingdom? Yes, he did. 
Um, in 1 Kings 19.3, it says that he went to Beersheba in Judah. Judah is the heart of the southern kingdom. So he went there. And it's not out of character for a, a prophet who is called to a particular king in a particular kingdom to give prophecies and advice to other individuals. We saw that with Elisha. Remember when the individuals came to him to be healed or came to him for information? He gave it out. So that one isn't a problem at all. So you can't use that one. That's not a very strong argument nor a very good one. Well, what, what else will we have? Well, let's take a look at maybe, just maybe, it's possible that he was alive at this time. Maybe he was very close to where he was going to be translated into heaven, but he was still alive. Remember, we have, you know, the chronology of kings, and sometimes it goes back. And so, is this one of those situations where it goes back, and it's enough to include him? Possibly. Let's Let's read what the expositors have to say. Although Elijah's last dated act occurred in 852, and then his translation to heaven still need not have occurred till after Jehoram's accession as sole monarch over Judah, and his crimes of slaughtering his brothers and his officials in the year 848. So let's just take a look here at the, at the chart. And I know there's a lot of details, but you know, when I'm looking at this, I'm saying, you know, number one, i got to understand this so that I can at least explain it. Number two, we have to understand it well enough because there are sharp atheists and agnostics who know about stuff like this, and they're going to bring it up. And so we ought to be able to answer them. Now, so if you look at the paint, maybe I should have chosen another color so you can see that. Notice the dates here. First of all, we have Jehoshaphat. He reigned from 870 to 848. Right? So that's a pretty long time. And we also believe that Jehoram, his son, co-reigned with him for a few years before he took over the sole reign. And let's just skip Elijah now, go down to Jehoram, and Jehoram. He took over in 848 and went to 841. Now, I've seen several records of commentaries that have said that Elijah did not leave this earth until 848. So, I don't know what part of 848, but it could crisscross. You know, it, it could have crisscrossed and he could have sent this letter. And, well, he did send the letter one way or another. And the letter is, number one, outlining his sin, and then prophesying what's going to happen to him because of his sin. So it's starting to get more and more detailed as you bring Elijah into this. Now, the third, the third possibility is post-mortem. Post-mortem ministry. Elijah may, however, have been gone by the time of the delivery of his letter, so that his sentence of doom could have had the force of a voice coming from the dead. So there's nothing out of the, the realm of possibility that a prophet could write something down of something that's going to happen. That's what prophets do. And he may have written this to Jehoram, to be delivered to Jehoram at a certain time. And so it was given to him if it was indeed prophesied. But I must say that that's the view that I, I initially took. But as I looked at it, there is there is some wiggle room. Uh, there's some wiggle room that Elijah possibly was alive. There is a verse that talks about Elisha. And you almost read into it and say, well, Elisha, now Elijah's gone. But it might be just merely saying, Elisha is Elijah's servant and will be his servant until he's translated. So that's one of the ways of working out one of those arguments. So either way, we know for a fact this is from Elijah. 
Elijah is a prophet of God. From a prophet of God, the words are 100% accurate, and here they are. And he, he calls it exactly as it is. He prophesies the consequences, and we're going to see the consequences come to fruition. All right, so now we're going to go back to 2 Kings chapter 8, and we're going to go through verses 19 to 23. But in there, we're going to go back, and we're going to look at 2 Kings, I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles, to see exactly what the prophecy was, and then we're going to go back to see the fulfillment. All right, so 2 Kings chapter 8, beginning of verse 19. So we've interjected Second Chronicles there, but then all of a sudden there is a phrase that kind of stops everything. Verse 19. So this is all that Jehoram did. Terrible. As bad as Ahab. Verse 19. However, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he had promised him to give a lamp to him through his sons always. We see this time and time again in the book of Kings and in other places that the reason God is being faithful to Judah is not so much because of Judah, but because of David. And he promised David that he would have someone on the throne. He promised David about the lineage through David's line. And what's going to happen here it's already happened. You know, what happens when we see a king sin and then God says, that's it, I'm destroying your family and your lineage. What does that do? That takes their name off the chalkboard. Okay, that family can't produce the Messiah. That's what's happening here. And it's a very interesting way in which God will eventually lead to the lineage of the Messiah. But it's we get to these evil kings, and no, God's going to destroy his family. None of his sons are going to sit on the throne. The messianic line cannot come through him. But here in 1 Kings 11, you don't have to turn there, he said, But through his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. Chapter 15, but for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him to establish Jerusalem. As long as that lamp is burning, there's hope. And as long as that lamp is burning, there is a connection to the Messiah. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Not for Judah's sake, not for Israel's sake, but for my own sake, says the Lord, and for David's sake. So we see this throughout. So it's a very interesting thing. So though he deserves whatever he gets, he's not going to get everything. Because the Lord's not going to destroy Judah because of him. All right. So what is it that Elijah said, whether it's alive at this time, because we're going back in time a little bit, or a post-mortem ministry. Alright, Second Chronicles again. Well, and by the way, let me just say, it is passages like this that make you, you know, have to be a student of the Bible. You've got to, you've got to do and dig in, and you've got to look at the clues, and um, you've also got to read the works of other men, and try to put this thing together. So this but this is one of those passages where, you know, if, if all of this other stuff is not bad enough, then we have to figure out who we're talking about. We're talking about Jehoram or Joram or the same person or two different people. All right. Second Chronicles 21, and now let's go to verse 14. I'll catch. Uh, let's go to 12, catch the context of 12 about the letter. Then a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord God of your father David, 
because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, and the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but have walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, even though you're from the southern kingdom, and have caused Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot as the house of Ahab played the harlot. You have also killed your brothers, your own family, who were better than you. And so here comes the prophecy. First of all, great calamity is going to come upon your family. Behold, the Lord is going to strike your people, your sons, your wives, and all your possessions with a great calamity. And we're going to see that fulfilled. Verse 15. If that's not bad, verse 15 is really bad. And you will suffer severe sickness, a disease of your bowels, until your bowels come out because of the sickness day by day. As, you know, I, I'm thinking, hey, if he just would have gave that, he wouldn't have needed to give him anything else. But he gives him harsh punishment because of his sin. Yet, he, he will not destroy Judah. So that's the second prophecy. What's the third prophecy? Verse 16, 2 Chronicles 21. Uh, let's see. 16, and it says, Then the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabs who bordered the Ethiopians. And they came against Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions found in the king's house together with his sons and his wives so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons. So at this point, we see the fulfillment of that prophecy. And the prophecy uh, is you're not going to have any offspring or lineage alive. Uh, and in verse 16, it, it says that they have been all swept away, all taken, all destroyed, except Jehovah. So there, we'll take a look at that when we get there. So that one was fulfilled. The enemies against him. And then how about the great calamity of the famine? Well, that's there. So we have these nations coming against him. And then we see that his family is destroyed. And then we get to the good one. All right. Verse 18. Here's the fulfillment. So after all this, the Lord smote him. And that's really about the only word he can use when... when God gives someone a punishment of bowels. You were smitten. You were smote by the Lord. So after all this, the Lord smote him in his bowels with an incurable sickness. Now it came about in the course of time, at the end of two years, that his bowels came out because of his sickness, and he died in great and his people made no fire for him like the fire for his fathers. Meaning they didn't like him at all. There was no celebration. Look at verse 20. He was 32 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. And he departed with no, with no one's regret. And they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of wasn't even allowed to be buried with him. So, it was Elijah again, whether he was still alive when he gave this prophecy uh, at the same time as the mortem or the post-mortem. It doesn't matter. It was a prophecy and it came true. Why Jehoram? Because even, even though he was a southern king, he lived like a northern. He lived like a northern king that was very steeped in idolatry and caused the people of Judah to play the harlot. Alright, so now let's go back to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 8 verse 20 and following. 
It says, in his days, and whose days? Well, we've been talking about one guy only, no matter whether he's Jehoram or his nickname is Jehoram. Uh, his days is Jehoram of the southern kingdom. In his days, Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah and made a king over themselves. So Edom had been under the control of Israel since the time of David. When it was the United Kingdom, Edom was under their control. And then after that, even in the divided kingdom, they were under the control. Now, they're going to come out from under the control of Judah, thanks to Jehoram. And by the way, these are things that are written in the law. The law of Moses to the Israel people, if you don't obey me and walk with me, if you forsake me, then I will raise up these nations to come against you. And that's what's exactly happening right here. Well, look at verse 21. Then Joram, so now we're calling him Bill. name was William, but now we're calling him Bill. Then Joram crossed over to Zaire, and all his chariots were him. And he arose by night and struck the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of his chariots. But his army fled to their tents. Obviously, this was a mistake. Obviously, the enemy was more powerful, and they had to flee for their lives. And that's exactly what happened. And then look at what it says in verse 20. So Edom revolted against Judah to this day. And that would at least be for the writing of 2nd Kings, and that was awesome. So, it, it, it was going on way past the time of Jehoram. And then we find another, another uh, nation, then Libna, revolted at the same time. So, we had, uh, we read there in Chronicles that those nations came against them, now Edom was coming against them, and now Libna uh, was coming against them, and, and all of this was showing because of his sin. And that's the end of that. And then verse 23 says, the rest of the acts of Joram, the southern king, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So this Joram is the southern king. And it says, so Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. But only from Second Chronicles do we find out that he was not buried in the tombs of outside of the kings. And so, all of these things coming upon him because he had forsaken the Lord God of his fathers. That's exactly what he had done. Now, just for a moment here, I'd like to just talk about Edom very quickly. Um, so you can see the, the, the brown is the southern kingdom and the green is the northern the brown had Jerusalem in it. That's the place that they were called to worship. But the northern kingdom made their own golden calf to worship. And if you notice down at the very southern end of Judah, you see Beersheba. And that's where Elijah went at one time. Um, south of there is the kingdom of Edom. Now on the east side, there's the northern side, and then the kingdom of Moab, and so they were mentioned, we've already talked about that, but here's the kingdom of Edom coming up again. Well, I would just like to, I'd just like to talk about this for just a moment, this punishment for forsaking the Lord, specifically in the case of Jehoram. So, when he did that, he broke three things. He broke God's covenant, Wrote the admonition to the kings. The kings all had an admonition not to forsake the Lord. And he broke, and I should say, his chain to the Messiah. Alright, so let's just cover those in a little bit more detail. First of all, he broke God's covenant. Obviously he did, but he forsook the Lord, and when he started causing Judah to worship foreign gods, I'm going to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And we've turned here numerous times throughout this book just to show you that this is 
what was laid down in the law of God to the Jewish people. Now, we are not under this system. We are not under law. We are under grace. However, that doesn't mean that God would never give us heavenly people plenty. He's going to ascension. He's going to die on the road. You know, uh, that might be the case, but it's not like, well, why, why am I having all this calamity in my life? Is it because I've forsaken the Lord and now I claim the law and I go under the law and the law says this is exactly what's going to happen? No, that's the legal. That's a misunderstanding of the law and dispensations. But, as I said, if we sin, uh, the Lord could intervene and could punish us, could chastise us, could discipline us all as his child, all his children, uh, to, to bring us back. But, look at what the law says specifically. Deuteronomy 28. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings that he's about to will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. What do you think I'm going to look at now? The part where it says, but, but if you don't. And even though that was, even though that was under the law, and even though it's under the dispensation of the law, there still is a, a beautiful uh, understanding of it. It's, 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 you know, I've called you serve me, if you will love me, you will obey me, everything will be fine. So even though it's from the law, it's not such a harsh law, except that it does have a negative side to it. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, with which I charge you today, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And in many situations we've referred to these. We've referred to sickness. We've referred to famine, pestilence. Well, here we're going to look at the idea of being defeated by an enemy. In verse 25, it says, The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them. But you will flee seven ways before them, and you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Meaning that God is going to raise up these enemies to discipline you. Meaning that all of the nations are going to say, what is wrong with those people? It's, it's, and we've seen it. These, these pagan nations have said, the reason why you're being chastised is because you've forsaken your God. And then also seen through the book of Kings numerous times where the king of Israel is acting like he has forsaken the Lord, but he doesn't want to do anything with the Lord, and then all oh, here are these people from other nations, and they have respect for the, for the prophets, and they have respect to some degree. In fact, of course, Naaman even went and worshipped Yahweh. And so, this is what we have here. So, why is this happening to Jehoram? Well, specifically because he broke God's commandments. But he also broke the admonition to the king. So Moses was speaking directly to the people there. But there are several times that the Lord speaks to these kings or someone addresses these kings and it's the same idea. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 4, it says, and this is all in keeping with the Davidic covenant. It's all around David. It's all around the Davidic covenant that he's going to keep someone on the throne. He's going to keep a lineage alive somewhere, somehow, so we can see and determine who is the Messiah. And of course, we see that with the Lord Jesus Christ. But one after one, these kings are getting knocked out. But it says, an address to the king. Solomon, so that the Lord may carry out his promise, which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and 
personal, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So David is talking to Solomon here, I believe. And he's saying this, look, as long as you obey me, it won't lack a man on the throne. Later on, in chapter 8 of 1 Kings, it says, Now therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised and saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne, if only your sons take heed to their way to walk before me and to his law. And over and over we see this, and this is an admonition to the king. Well, what's Jehoram doing? Nothing. He's following the northern kingdom. And so we see that his family was destroyed uh, so that his lineage has been removed. And that's the third thing that's broken, is the chain to Messiah. This is what John MacArthur writes. The removal of the king's family precludes not only the fact that his sons will not succeed him, but it will break the chain of the possibility of the Messiah coming from that line. During the reign of Jehoram, Edom defeated the Judean army. Okay, so I'm kind of switching the point here. The first one is breaking the line to the Messiah. This is going to talk about Edom, but still in the same idea of the Messiah. During the reign of Jehoram, Edom defeated the Judean army. It took some borderlands and became independent of Judah's rule. The continuing sovereignty of Edom proved that none of the future kings of Judah recorded in Second Kings was the anticipated Messiah because the Messiah would possess Edom. So God at the same time here is putting a gavash and saying, no, the Messiah is not coming from there. In Numbers chapter 24, we see the prophecy about Israel, but about the Messiah. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheph. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. So that is a reference to the Messiah, and that he will possess all of these things. Well, this whole idea brings us to a point that these kings of Judah now will be uh, removed from the chain of the Messiah. But what about us? Well, certainly these things aren't going to apply to us because we're not under God's law or God's covenant. We're not kings and have this admonition. And the Messiah has already come. What about us? Well, I think the moral principle is that we ought to love the Lord and obey Him. And it's true. Um, even if it's not punishment under the law, if, if you do want things to go well without consequences, you must obey the Lord. Now, that's not to say that you're not going to have spiritual warfare and things are going to come against you. So I'm not saying that. This isn't health and wealth. I'm not preaching that. But I am saying even the principles of Proverbs talk about, you know, if you say the right thing at the right time, it will be like um, a silver plate with golden apples on it. That kind of thing. If you, if you see danger ahead and you're prudent and you walk away from it, you will be blessed. That's the kind of thing. Following these principles, obeying the Lord, does keep us from a number of consequences. And then, of course, if we not even uh, abide by that, uh, the Lord in Hebrews talks about heavenly discipline, that God's doing it to make us holy. Well, we have that. But the idea is, again, if, if even when we were reading the law, and the law was saying it in such a way that it sounded if you will obey me and you will follow my commandments, um, we'll have this fantastic relationship. Well, that was in the law. How much more by grace, where we already have this relationship, where we already have forgiveness of sins of all sins, where we already have this 
faith and the power to put these things into practice. And so the truth would be, if we don't walk like we should, it's almost as if we're doing worse than what Israel did and Jehoram did at this time. So that's the admonition. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the illustration once again that you are a holy God and you hate sin. You've always hated sin. And that's why you sent your son to die on the cross for sin so that we sinners could have forgiveness. And I pray if there's anyone listening, Lord, live streaming, they don't know Christ. I pray that they would come to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I trust you as my Savior now. And in that moment, we'll place him in faith in you there, forgiven of his sin, and given eternal life. Father, we just thank you for the salvation in you and the grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.